Hey, Harvest, good to see you. Uh, we have a special video for you. And the reason it's a special video is we are going to deliver to you in kind of a roundtable format what we did Sunday. Um, we had some technical difficulties and actually do not have the footage. And we really wanted you guys to have this as a resource to be able to go back through to remember the book of Ephesians. And so we're basically going to recap and go through our notes from Sunday. And so we're going to jump right off the bat. Um, Todd is going to bring us into our Ephesians overview and why we got into the book in the first place. That's right. Um, last summer, something um, one of the more significant events in the life of our church, you guys, of course, will remember, was uh, um, the abrupt uh, resigning of our senior pastor. And, um, and what came out of that was a couple of things that, uh, that the elders and the staff started wrestling over. Lord, what are you doing? And, uh, and the two things that it revealed uh, that we saw as it came out of his resignation uh, were these things. Number one, um, his resignation revealed that there were a number um, of weaknesses in the life of our church. Those weaknesses led to fractures within the body of the church. And then, of course, those fractures revealed that there was clear division in the life and the body of our church. And so that was, of course, very, very concerning um, to the leadership of the church. And it was something that we really believed the Lord was calling us to address. Um, and, and then also, as we prayed, as we fasted, and as we wrestled over the Lord, where the Lord had us, and you remember, how often did we say, Lord, we, we can we can relate to Jehoshaphat right now, as he says, with this great horde, um, this army that was out in front of him. Lord, we, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are fixed on you. And that's where we were. We didn't know what to do, but our eyes were fixed on him. And as we fasted and prayed, it also revealed not only was there division in the church, um, but also we were beginning to wonder if we'd lost our true identity and reason for being a church. And uh, had we become a church that was overly focused on the things that we should do and shouldn't be doing and, and, and lost our first love as we, see, um, as we see Jesus telling John in the second chapter of Revelation to record um, this letter to the church that was written 40 years after the book of Ephesians, where Paul had written his letter to the church of Ephesus. And this is what it said. I just want to read it for us. Um, it began with this in verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who have called themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But then he says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. And, uh, and so as we, as we wrestled and prayed together, we really believed that we had become a church that was heavily focused on on what were things that were that the church of Ephesus was commended for, they were commended for, um, we had become focused on those types of things, forsaking our love for Jesus Christ and for each other. And so it beca we began to pray, Lord, stir in us our love and affection for you. Stir in us our love and affection for you. And out of that um, came 
our study in the book of Ephesians, and uh, took us straight to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, which was kind of the theme verse for last fall, and addressing some of these things. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. We wanted to see the Holy Spirit at work in the life of our church. We wanted to see the Holy Spirit move in the life of our church and, uh, and bring unity in the church, an answer for the division that we had seen um, reveal itself in July and August of last summer. So this is what I've seen. I just want to share what I've seen over the course of the last nine months or so. We see a church that's growing in its love for Jesus Christ and for each other. And, uh, and I also see a church in, in Ephesians 4.32. I see a church that's, that's becoming more and more accustomed to being kind to one, to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving to one another as God and Christ has forgiven us. So, uh, yeah, there's some of the things I've seen. I love the direction that we're headed. Yeah, me too. Well, Charles, why don't you start us out and uh, take us through the first three chapters of Ephesians. We broke it down into two, two really... We built together new life in Christ. Tell us about the first three chapters. Yeah, the first section that we did in the fall into the winter was the passage of one through three. And we focused, and we said that main focus of that passage is about what God has done for us. And so in chapter one, you could summarize that by saying that this is the great and glorious plan of God in Christ. In verse three, he starts and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And immediately he's telling you, everything that you've needed is yours in Jesus Christ. And so this is the great and glorious plan of God. And so he looks at it from the perspective of how does the Trinity accomplish all of this for people. And so he highlights the Father, he highlights the Son, and he highlights the Holy Spirit. And I love the fact, again, that he uses the term every spiritual blessing. There's nothing that God has withheld from his people. Nothing. All of it. All of it. Everything that you need for life and godliness is yours in Jesus Christ. And so then he ends chapter 1 with a prayer that they would see that more. And that they would actually experience that more. But that they would see it in Christ. And so the focus then moves on this great and glorious plan that was yours is also seen in the lives of individuals and the people of God. And so chapter 2 moves to the passage where, it's a very famous passage, talking about you were dead in your sins, but God, according to his love, made you alive in Christ Jesus. It's by grace that you have been saved. So he looks at the individual transformation that God has accomplished for individual people. But then he doesn't stop there. Then he talks about the fact of Jew and Gentile are now reconciled in Christ in the same manner. So the people of God, you're not just saved as an individual, you are brought into a family, which is very important as we move into the latter half of Ephesians, is that that is the basis on which our unity or being built together is found. It's found in Jesus Christ. He's the one building us into a holy temple and a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so the plan, again, for individuals and the people of God. And then chapter 3, we look at the hidden plan that was not revealed in the past, is now revealed through Christ. And so Paul talks about how he's become a minister of the gospel and how it was a mystery that was hidden. And now God's wisdom and his plan and the fulfillment of these things is seen because of what God has accomplished through Christ. And it's so hidden that even angels and and the powers in the heavenly places are seeing this 
the, the wisdom of God is being manifested even today through the church. And then he ends with a prayer that you and I would be able to live this stuff out. And so he prays that we would be strengthened by the Spirit, which is really the hinge on which chapters 1 through 3 go into 4 through 6. And I think one of the hardest things that we knew would happen is that as we went into 4 through 6, which you'll talk about very soon, is just the fact that you cannot do that at all apart from 1 through 3. If you forget 1 through 3 then four through six is just moralism. You're just doing acts. And as Todd mentioned, like the good news cannot be divorced from the good news. But the good news so often are divorced from the good news. It is the balance of the two of them. And Ephesians does that very well. But it starts with, this is what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. That's good. I remember as chapter three, but the church getting to display the manifold wisdom of God to even the the rulers and authorities in heavenly places and we get to be that as the church one through three is what God has done for us and then we see four through six here's what it is what God will do through us and we talked about this as we met Um, Charles you were actually the one that that made us change this because we had what God wants to do through us. And you made a reminder that, no, this is what God will do through his children, which is a good reminder. And that, that's, which brings us back to the, uh, the uh, motto we kind of had through the book of Ephesians, that a changed heart by God will bring a changed life for God. And so now we see four through six is what God will do through us and his children. And so four through six is categorized like this. New life in Christ by the Spirit. New life in Christ by the Spirit. It's just, it's a very visual outward look of what a life of someone saved looks like that is both a believer and being led by the Spirit. And so we see this word walk pop up all the way through those chapters. So I'll go through them real quick. Our first one we saw was walk worthy. And so, hey, based off everything you saw in one through three, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Like what he's given us our walk should match that and live according to the to what that's worth. And then we were we were told, but but don't walk as the Gentiles do, as you used to. You are now new. You have new life, and so your life will look different. Don't go back to those things. Then we saw this. Instead, walk in love. Be imitators of God as beloved children, loving one another. And I love what Todd says: being able to see within the church of us growing in kind heartedness and and being tender to one another and forgiving one another. In Christ Jesus, so walk in love. And then then walk in light, the responsibility to expose darkness, to stay in the light of the gospel, and have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. And then we see this um, as we're closing up on that, that final walk was walk in wisdom. Hey, the days are short. The days are evil. Make best use of your time. Walk in a manner worthy. Walk in light. Walk in wisdom. And then we... Uh, heard finally that out of all of this that you've heard then the enemy's at work so stand firm with the full armor of God so that's four through six Um, one of the fun things we get to do right now though is we get to show you guys a little bit of the um, the work that we did the week before and trying to really break down the chapters in an outline form that would be helpful to help us understand like what's really going on. And so what we've shown you guys is this. So here's what we've just talked about, the basic, the basic outline, which was what God has done for us 
and what God will do through us. That's the basic outline. But uh, I believe I believe Todd's going to introduce us to what I call the "if I can be honest" outline. Yeah, if I could be honest, if you if you guys remember back. Um, September to end of November and the time we spent in chapters 1 through 3, uh, there was a lot of excitement, a lot of excitement drummed up. You know, when you hear, when you hear that according to God's predetermined plan, He chose us to be a part of His kingdom. He throws the, he throws, he throws the gates of His kingdom open for us to enter in and the moment we walk in, He slams them behind us and we're in forevermore and it's by His grace um, that He has extended that to us. And so a lot of excitement was, was, uh, um, was real and tangible um, last fall. And then, of course, we come uh, this spring, uh, starting in January, and we start addressing some of the real-life issues uh, that we would face. And, and so as you think of, as you think of uh, chapters 1 through 3, um, it's, yes, God was the response. Yes, God, we're fired up about it. We're fired up about it. And then you get to verses, or chapters 4 through 6, and it's more of a no, it's more of a no thanks, God. How do we have it? Really, God, no thank you. It's hard, especially when we started addressing uh, relationships in the home, wives with husbands, husbands with wives, parents with kids, even in the workplace, masters with slaves. We started getting responses that were, well, yeah, but what about? What about this situation? What about this scenario? And, uh, and we kept going back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where it says, you must be filled with the Spirit. Yeah. In order for this to even be possible, for you to live a life for Christ in your home and in your workplace, you must be filled with the Holy Spirit. And even, even as Paul says in that verse, many would use wine as, a, as an answer for the life's problems that they were experiencing. And he says, don't get drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. He knew they needed to hear it's dependent on the Holy Spirit in your life um, for you to be able to live a life for me and with me. And so, yes, God, thank you for one through three. Really, God, no, thank you. I don't want to do this. Yeah. And uh, so that drove us even further into our study and our time in chapters four through six. Yeah. yeah. And as you think about that dynamic, obviously the Bible understands that, and that's the giving of the Spirit of God, as you mentioned. And so Galatians 5 is very key in understanding this because the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for those are opposed to each other and they keep you from doing the things that you want to do and so really what's what we're looking at what's really going on in this outline is one through three is this idea that your spirit in Christ that new life is rejoicing it's saying, amen, thank you. As you said, thank you, God. Spirit is rejoicing in those things because they're marvelous truths. But at the same time, as we wrestled over the reality of what that looks like in our visible life, your flesh is going to fight against that every single day. Because everything that you would like to do, as it says, the desires of your flesh, as you wrestle not against flesh and blood, your eyes are still tempted to look at that and say, that's my fight. But constantly we're being reminded, no, that is, that is not the fight. The fight is for the Spirit to reign in your life and to let the Spirit control you. 
And so as we look at that, again, we come back to this idea of how do we even apply the book of Ephesians. That was really one of the first questions that someone asked was how do we really apply the book of Ephesians. And we, we agreed that one of the main things we have to do is go back to these prayers. Again, one key word that Paul uses in Ephesians 1, the first prayer, he says in verse 18, he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And if you think of that word enlightened, it's very interesting that it really means to see more, more clearly. So the picture is, is that our hearts, there's a darkness to our hearts. And so you talked about walking in the light, walking in love. Well, we often don't walk that way. And so the spirit of God, by his grace, is bringing to light these areas. And relationships are one of the main ways that God brings those things to light. And so our flesh does not like the fact that it's being exposed so the spirit is going to come in and take control of that area. And that's what he's praying. He's praying that the spirit would enlighten you to see where Christ is going to be Lord in your heart. Because there are things that we hold on to. We don't even see them. But God, by his grace, in the context of community, exposes us as we interact with one another to see that's what's really going on. And you need to submit to the spirit of God in this. And so really he's praying that the darkness would be made clearer to you so that the light and the spirit would defeat the deeds of the flesh and that you would move to look more like Christ and look more like that new life that he's promised you. Yeah. That's good. These outlines that we made, they come from wrestling over the questions we got. So the questions we got helped us realize kind of, hey, here's, here's the honest outline and here's really what's going on. And every single question, but the one that Charles just addressed about applying the book, every single question we got was about spirit-filled relationships. Does that surprise you guys at all? No, not even not a chance. Why do you think after preaching through six chapters, us opening the door, say any question you want about the book of Ephesians, why would they all revolve around spirit-filled relationships? Why? What do you think? Well, based on my personal experience, based on counseling experience, based on simple observation, the home is the hardest place to display Christ. I agree with it. I agree with it. This spirit-filled relationship is, is, is God basically meddling. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we say what God will do through us, what is it God is doing through us? He's, he's taking our life and molding it into the life of Christ and using it in the world to show forth his glory as well as expel the gospel. And the reality is sometimes the gospel, most of the time the gospel is seen in our responses to hard situations. And so God wants us to be put in situations and will allow us to suffer to be able to manifest the patience of Jesus and the grace of Jesus to be able to shine forth the gospel. And so God, that is one thing God's doing through us through these relationships. So let me, let me, as we get into our Q&A time, the first question, we broke it down into two questions, really. We got more than that, but they all had to do around spirit-filled relationships. And, but there was one that was kind of separated from the others, and the others were all basically saying the same thing. So here's, here's the first question. The first question is this. It says, <clears throat> the person says, I fell as a parent and spouse every day. And it was said a couple times, referring to the sermons, <clears throat> that we will be held accountable for how we parent and treat our spouse. If our sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west, how should I think about the fact that I will be held in judgment? Initial thoughts on that question? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold mine until 
um, I address the second question. So it'll be toward the end. But okay. I do have something to say about that. I'm sure. just going to I'm going to hold off until okay. we get to that. As I uh, I kind of specifically had dealt with this question, um, and my studies and my searching led me very heavily to Second Corinthians chapter five. Why did my why did this question lead me to Second Corinthians chapter five? Well, because Paul is talking and making the point in verse ten that we will all stand before the judgment of God and be held accountable for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. And so when I hear someone asking this question, I, I too, I'm like, yes, I feel that same tension. And here's the encouragement about this question. So does Paul. And that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You see him in the first part of the chapter mentioned the groanings and the pains of being a believer that's still in this body of flesh. And so he says we groan. We want to be done with this life and at home. Every single believer. Why do we groan? Because we, we're constantly confronted with our failures every single day and our shortcomings. God is molding us and transforming us into the image, but he admitted there's a groaning there. So you see a pain. But then immediately you see him switch and he starts to, he almost feels encouragement as he thinks about though what he's going to receive from the Lord and how, hey, one day that this will be made right and the spirit's been given as a guarantee and so you see joy then pop up in the moment. But then immediately following that joy, he says, for we must all appear before the judgment. And so you immediately, boom, right back to the tension. And the motive, the motive of bearing through is this idea that God sees everything, knows everything, and will be held accountable. But immediately after that verse, he then chooses that. It says, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And then he goes into this great this this great um, paragraph of talking about how we're ambassadors of Christ. Now we're on planet Earth, knowing the fact that judgment's going, knowing that personally, that terror and that tension, we then reach out to the lost and dying world and say, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand. But then he ends that chapter back in the identity he has and what God has done for us in Christ, forgiven all of our sins, taking our punishment. And so my question to this, my answer to this person is, listen, your goal should not be to get rid of that tension. The goal isn't to live in only joy and never feel that tension. I think, that's a, I think that is a tension that reveals a true believer who understands the terror of the Lord and is living in reality and recognition of their failures and shortcomings. But my, my not critique, but my, my truest answer to that is, listen, if you're staying, though, in a place of fear and judgment where you feel that God is somehow going to strike you with a lightning bolt, then you're not allowing the grace of God to balance that fear. Because what that should lead you to is every time you're confronted with your failures, you should constantly be putting the fact that Jesus sacrificed everything, gave up his life to do away with all of your sins and failures once and for all, and that the grace of God abounds far much more, and that you will never be held in judgment according to your sins in God. Believers only stand in the judgment of God for the things, the works done in the body. And so the bad works that were useless get burned up, and the main things remain. And if nothing good remains, 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that we're still saved through the fire. And, and so, yes, we may suffer loss of reward, but for a believer there is no judgment of sin. And so that this person needs to complete this statement with, with reminding themselves of what Jesus has done for him and the grace and the glory that is in um, Jesus when you start thinking about moments like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
As I think of that person, too, that question uh, of the failure and, and seeing that, I, I think the Bible speaks into the fact that that person is valued in a way that a prideful person is not valued. And, and I see that very clearly in the fact of they at least are admitting that there are things that are wrong. And as I think about even counseling and talking to people, the Bible exonerates and actually honors a person who has that sort of sensitivity. Isaiah is very clear about it. He says, this is the one that I will look to, the one who is humble and contrite in heart and who trembles at my word. And so it sounds like this person has more of a sensitivity to what the Spirit is doing as opposed to a person who believes, no, I've got all, I'm perfectly fine, I don't need this. And so there's actually a more reliance and receptivity to what the Spirit would be doing in their heart than a person who's simply doing the actions and having no reliance on the Lord. So that's the first thing. But then to the, the aspect of judgment, 1 Peter 4 does say that it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, he, he asks, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then he quotes Proverbs that says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? It's interesting that the actual passage in Proverbs says, if the righteous is repaid on earth. And so it's interesting as you, as you read that, you're thinking that much of what is happening, especially in First Peter, is that Peter is telling them that your faith is going to be tested to evidence whether or not it is genuine or fake. Because the tested genuineness of your faith, as he says in chapter 1, is more precious than gold, even though it's refined by fire. And so God, even in Hebrews 12, talks about him disciplining his children, of him refining them, of conforming them, of, of growing them, of the spirit inside of them, testifying with their spirit that they're children of God. And I would say that really the, the expectation of a child of God is not that they would stand before God and reap some bad that would happen. It is the expectation of things that are good. If you think of the good and faithful servant, one of the things that is stated to the good and faithful servant is only positive things. He doesn't bring up anything. They didn't do everything perfectly, but they were faithful. They were good and faithful servants. The wicked one was the one who was given full clarity on how evil they actually were. And so when you think of that context of bad and good, we do trust that our sins are covered by the sacrifice of Christ. And a believer will see that and value Christ more because of that, which actually is God's faith, is walking faithfully with God through this earth. And so you have to keep that in mind, is that the failings and the things that you're, you should see those. You have to see those because that's absolutely normal for us. But it's what do you do with those? Do you let them overwhelm you? Do they let them do you let them shame you? Do you do you make them keep you out of the community of believers or do you let that drive you to Christ and testify to the necessity and dependence on him and what he's done for us again in Ephesians 1 through 3. It should always push you back to 1 through 3. It should never remove you from 1 through 3 because you're going to fail in 4 through 6. So you have to keep it is a tension that you will keep. And it's necessary for the life of a believer, but that's actually more evidence of faith in Christ than anything else. There was a, <clears throat> one of the questions that was asked was someone asking on behalf of a family member. And the, the family member who has passed away um, experienced hardship with a spouse, a very hard spouse, and lived faithfully to them 
day in and day out, suffering and suffering and suffering. But here's what's interesting. The one who lived faithfully and endured the suffering at the end of their life, uh, this person said that they felt guilt, wishing they could have done more. And I think about the selfless nature of a heart like that, that it's so focused on their own heart and what they can do for others and how they can be used by God that even as after a lifetime of suffering, their attention wouldn't be on how horrible that person was to them, yeah. um, but on how they wish they could have done more for that person. That's, that's a spirit-filled person. Mm. And I think of that even as First Peter says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him or her not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And I think too often it's in a sense, people look down on a person who's, who's willingly suffers for the sake of Christ. And to that example, someone who's given their heart to someone who does not appreciate them or belittles them and yet remains faithful to the Lord, that person has no reason to be ashamed. No reason to be ashamed. And so no one else can bring a charge against that person. No one else can, can stand over and above and judge that person, as Romans 8 would say. No one can bring a charge against that person. God is for them. No one is against them. They should be, they should be lifted and heralded as an example. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. All right, so here's the next question. This is the next question. It's the last question, but it also is every other question. <laughs> every other question fit within this one. They were almost word for word, maybe with a different focus, but it was all the same. And here it is. <clears throat> Basically, the question is this. How do I submit, love, obey, honor, parent, serve, lead which is all the things we learned in the spirit relationships. It was all the expectations of believers in certain, whether it's a parent, it's all of those. How do I do these things when there has been, and then fill in the blank, and some of the uh, examples that were given was divorce, uh, parents don't, that don't speak well of me, uh, emotional and a physical abuse, yeah. um, unreasonableness, harshness of discipline, nagging, distrust, anger, it, Etc. So this is where the reality comes in, and these this this is what what everyone's thinking when you when you go through four three six. This is the natural question. Well, let me first start by saying this: um, we I received a letter even before we asked for um, questions from the church uh, that detailed a pretty significant abusive situation for a child, now adult, walking with the Lord, but. But looking back on the life of that child in an, in an extremely abusive home, how in the world can a child like that, even now in adulthood, honor that parent? And here's, so here's the first word. We can't use Sunday morning as answer time. Yes, it's a part of the life and the body of, the, um, of Christ. It's, it's part of the life of the church. But it can't just be, hey, pastor, give me an answer for this so that I can go home and put it into practice. While the answer may be given, to actually put it into practice requires support. It requires accountability. It, it requires prayer partners. It requires the life of the body coming around someone that's been in a situation like that to, to be a help to them. So Sunday morning can't be answer time. Life in the body of the church extends beyond an hour and a half on Sunday morning. It flows into small groups. It flows into serving together, being involved in the lives of the ch- in the life of the church. That's really um, whatever answer is provided right now. 
Um, the true answer is taking that and being in fellowship with others. So I just want to be clear with that. Sunday morning is not answer time entirely. All right? Well, as it relates to that question, um, how do I submit to a husband that's not worthy to be submitted to? How do I love a wife that makes it extremely difficult to love? How do I, how do I honor a parent that was never worthy of honor? How do I parent a child that can't be parented? They're proving to not be able to be parented. Well, here's what I believe. I believe the answer is the same for all of these. And uh, so I have a couple of truths I want to share right now. First, I'm going to, I'd like to speak to um, those who have been abused, those who have been mistreated. And then, and then I, have, uh, um, I have some things that I believe the Scripture has to say about those that are, who are the abusers those who are the ones that mistreat their family. Um, But first, let me share a couple of truths that Scripture brings to bear um, for those who have been mistreated and abused. Um, First of all, uh, I would like to make it clear, the church does not promote staying in an abusive situation. We would ask, if you are in one, if you are aware of an abusive situation, it's time to cry out for help and look for help. We're not suggesting in anything we would say that you stay in an abusive situation. As a matter of fact, Proverbs uh, verse 22, 3 says this, the prudent, sees danger and hide, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. There is a time where you need to get out and hide yourself. You need to seek for help. And uh, we're asking you to do that. Let us know, is there a way we can help? But here's one of the first truths that I believe Scripture is very, very clear on for those who are in situations where, whether you're mistreated by, um, by um, a controlling parent or an abusive spouse or whatever the situation is, here's the real truth. You can be free. You can be free. John eight thirty six. Jesus says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Freedom comes through the work and the power and the might that we see Jesus expressing as he, as he permitted himself to go to the cross. He scorned at shame. He suffered. He took care of every offense, every hurt, every pain, every wrong ever done. He took it upon himself on that cross to not be counted against the individual anymore and forever. And so here's what we're tempted to do. When you think about Jesus Christ setting us free, he's not just setting us free from the sin we commit. He's, he's setting us free from all offenses that have even been brought against us. Remember, when we are free, that means we have stepped into his eternal kingdom and the gates have been closed behind us. We are in a very, very safe place, an eternally safe place in the presence of Jesus Christ through the power and the might and the work of his Holy Spirit in us. But here's what we're tempted to do. We're tempted to magnify the sin, whether it's ours or the one that's been done against us, that's been committed against us, the abuse, the mistreatment. We tend to magnify that in all of the pain, in all of the shame, in all of the hurt, in all of the anger and rage and bitterness. We magnify that. And we take all of that and we heap it on a throne. And that becomes what rules us. 
And John 8, 36 says, no, if you are in relationship with Jesus Christ, he has set you free from that. But the temptation is to make that be what rules us. And then over here we have, we have what, what, what really is us making a tiny little Jesus sitting on his throne and not capable of dealing with this massive throne of hurt and pain that life has brought to me. And John 8, 36 says, no, that's you have it wrong. We're talking about the eternal Jesus who is far greater than any mountain of sin that would be brought in pain and and hurt and heartache and anger that would be brought against us. He is far greater than those things. And so, so the way we should look at it is Jesus has set me free because he is so much bigger than the offenses that have been brought against us. He is able to and can, and if you are in relationship with him, has dealt with that mountain of pain and hurt that you've experienced. So if the Son has set you free, remember you are free indeed. And here's another one for you. David Paulison makes this point in his book, Good and Angry, and I would suggest you get it and you read through it. You may never get over what has happened to you, but that's okay. You may never get over it, and that's okay. Because Psalm 147 verse 3 says this, God heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. And while you may never forget, likely will never forget the mistreatment and the abuse that's been brought upon you by someone close to you. It has been cared for. God brings healing to that. While it's in your head, you no longer have to bear the pain and the hurt and the anguish and the anger that comes from, that could come from what happened to you. God heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. You can be free, John eight thirty six. You may never get over it, and that's okay because of Psalm 147, verse 3. And then, how in the world can a child honor a parent that's been so abusive? And this is, this is really... This is really it. This is the message. It begins with mercy. It begins with mercy. It begins with understanding the mercy that flows from Jesus Christ to you. Joining with the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy um, verse 15 where he says, I'm the foremost of sinners. It's a focus on who I am before the Lord Jesus with no one else around. I understand who I am before him, and I receive his mercy. And when you can understand the mercy that Jesus Christ has extended to you, that's when he can begin to bring healing in your relationship and and an ability for you to honor the one that's abused you because you're understanding the mercy of Jesus Christ and that he showers upon you. And so here's here's a bit of a test for you. If you can think of it in these terms, maybe you're not at a place where you're ready to extend mercy. But you need to cry out to the Lord. And here's how you know if uh, you're able to extend mercy, if your heart is in a place of mercy. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes your cloak, do not withhold your your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you would wish, would wish that others would do to you, you do also to them. 
If you read that and you say that's impossible, it's absolutely impossible, then, then you don't have a firm grasp on what the mercy of the Lord Jesus is. The mercy of the Lord Jesus gives you, through the work of the Holy Spirit in you, gives you the ability to act those things out. To pray for the one who has abused you. To pray for the one who has abused you. Child, to honor the parent that's impossible to honor. Wife, to submit to a husband that is not worthy of your submission. Husband, to love the wife that has made it impossible to love. Understanding the mercy of Jesus Christ. And none of this has anything to do with the behavior of of the one who is offended. It has everything to do with what Jesus Christ has done in your heart, bringing you a place and understanding of mercy. So that's for, I know I'm getting long here, but that's for the mistreated. Now, here's a word, here's a truth for the one who is the mistreater, the one who is the abuser, the one who is the offender. The truth of the scripture will bring you unrest. It will bring you to a place where there is no peace. God is angry with every single injustice. Every abusive act, every mistreatment of the vulnerable and the weak, God is angry with it and he is fully aware of the pain that you inflict on those in your life. And so to the mistreater or the abuser or the offender, or whatever title you want to carry, carry, this is what Scripture says. It says, beware. To the unsaved, if you are not in relationship with Jesus Christ, here's what it looks like for you. Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And you might be able to say, hey, you know what? I've skated through right now. No one knows about this. It's secret. Numbers 32.23 says this, you be sure that your sin is going to find you out. It won't go hidden forever. It will find you out. And then Romans 12 verses 18 and 19 says, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And so here's my, here's my desperate plea to you. Repent. Repent. Bring it out into the open. Say, this is who I am and I need Jesus Christ and I need his mercy to wash over me, to change me because I don't want to be this. That's my plea to you if you're unsaved and you're an abuser. Now to the saved, 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 17 says this, and, and you heard Charles refer, refer to it just a little bit ago. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And we've wrestled over this often. What does that actually look like for the believer in Jesus Christ when the day he returns and we stand before him? What does judgment begin? What does it look like? And as we've wrestled over this, last weekend we, were, we had a group of men at the Vertical Men Conference or, or, or retreat um, up at Crant Hill. And, uh, and one of the pastors was sharing that he's had, he's had men in their 50s and 60s and 70s come into his office and speak of a life of regret. Because of the sin that has come into this world, the Lord, we see his judgment all around us. And so here's what I want to share with you very personally. I'm one of those 50-year-olds. I look back over the course of my parenthood with three sons um, that were brought into a marriage. I married Wendy, and of course she had three sons. And I think about the way I treated them throughout the course of their childhood and on into adulthood. And here's what I believe. Here's a, here's a whiff. I believe a whiff of the Lord's judgment on me as a believer in Jesus Christ. He has cleansed me from, freed me from. My sons are all 
in God's grace have passionate, meaningful relationships with the Lord that I don't even deserve for them to have. But I still have regret. I live with regret for the way I parented them. Not in everything, but in many things I have regret. And God says, he says, I've dealt with it. It's a, we're all good. We're all, cl- we're all clean. We're all pure. But that's, it's not going to leave your mind. And so you're going to live with regret for the, for the way you treated them as you parented them. And so this is my word to you. If you're someone that's heavy-handed in your house, I speak to men in particular, and wives, you're not, you're not um, this is for you as well. It's listen, listen, do not look back. Don't find yourself at the age of 50 and 60 and 70 looking back and saying, I regret the way I parented. I regret the way I was a husband, the way I was a wife, the way I mistreated. And so here's the key to it all. Ephesians 5, 18, none of this is possible without the Holy Spirit. It is absolutely impossible. Not by might, not by power, but my my spirit, God says. And that's the whole point of spirit-filled relationships because another outline we kind of thought of for four through six was the ridiculous expectations of God for his children. Because from our perspective, what he's asking is impossible. And that's absolutely right. It is impossible. But that's when Jesus comes in and says, but with me, all things are possible. And ergo, weak people need the spirit to empower them to do something that's supernatural and outside of the flesh. Um, I'd like to piggyback on this question as well to remind us that we need to rethink or check ourselves to see why do I follow Christ? If I claim Christ, what is the point of it? Second Corinthians 5, Paul said we make it our aim to please him. His, his whole goal in life was doing everything for the sake of the gospel and to use his body, whatever it is, to please him. So what does that mean? And it also makes you think of Jesus saying this. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Anyone, if any one of us would come after Jesus, that's the requirement. To deny ourselves, which means deny myself comfort, luxury, and what I want my life to be. Pick up my cross, which is what? The cross is, a, is, is an execution. It's a, it's a symbol of suffering. And then follow after Christ as he walked up Calvary with a cross on his back. But then he says this, for whoever would save his life will lose it. The person who puts all their efforts into trying to make this life now the most important thing and finding their satisfaction and joy and putting all of their stock into this life on earth, which is wasting away, he says, will lose it, lose it eternally, lose their soul. But he says, whoever loses his life, which means is willing to suffer and to give up the comforts and the luxuries and, and the hope of this life for his sake and the gospels says, we'll save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? That's what's at stake. And what can man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed. And when he comes in glory of his Father with his holy angels. You see, we, this reveals that we know Scripture very well, and we even know this idea of suffering. But when it comes to actual personal application, it's like, really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. 
I think of a, a Muslim man that I just heard of recently who lost his whole family, children and everything, because he gave his life to Christ. His father and his sons, when he confessed to them that he's leaving Islam to follow Jesus, they dragged him out in the yard and they beat him nearly to death and then threw him out as an outcast. And now he no longer has his family. And I think, and we asked this Sunday, but what would we say to him? What would we say to him? Would, if, if our goal is to find our happiness and all of our joy only in making sure that we have our children and we have our, our, our section of life, mm-hmm. then we might, we might be tempted to tell him, well, if you can get your son back or your daughter back, then deny Christ if that will give you back your family. But we know in our hearts, like, no, 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 you stand firm on the gospel. That's what matters most. And so that's a reminder to us that right now, the true suffering of the world is going on in almost a genocide level the rest of the world. And we need to be willing, be thankful if God's not bringing that level to us, but then let that motivate us to be willing to suffer in the areas and the places that God has called us to, because he will call us to suffer, because we're told that we will enter the kingdom of heaven through much tribulation. Yeah, and as I think of how Ephesians ends again going back to revelation 2 it was the fact that they've fallen from their first love they've left they've neglected and i have to be careful here because it's it's so difficult it's not that we would face perhaps in in this life face the degree to persecution that let's say that gentleman would face i'm not saying that it won't but there is something of the compromise of the value of the world that we place on the same level as Christ. Mm. And so really what he's saying here is that the very things that I am granting to you and telling you to do are because the value of them exceeds everything else in this world. Mm-hmm. And so even in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, as you look at that, he's, he's telling them to fix their eyes on things that are unseen. And so the, the wrestling of the flesh, as we talked about it before, is really looking at those things that are seen, and they become so paramount in our life that they overwhelm us with concern and anxiety. And as, as God tells us, don't be anxious over these things. Don't worry about these things. I am greater than these things. And so you see this, this constant check in our spirit to, to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Because everything that we saw as we, as we read about it, they're not seen now. We have, they are true. They're realized in us. But we can't just check them off and be reminded all the time of them as if they're tangible things that we see. They're of the spirit. They are spiritually appraised. And so anyone in the flesh cannot receive them because they are by the spirit of God. And so even a greater point of that is we need to remember that the Spirit of God in us is the one drawing us constantly upward and further into the future than we're willing to look so often. And so as he he ends the letter, he talks about a love for God that is incorruptible, or even some would say that it's talking about immortality. So it reads this, he says in verse 23 of chapter 6, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just that verse alone, love with faith. You're not going to see Jesus, but you're going to love Jesus. You're not going to see the benefit necessarily of that relationship, but you're going to press further into it, and you're going to continue because it's 
with faith that you do this. But then he says, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Some translations put grace and immortality be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. But either way, the focus is there are benefits with Christ that push you to love him and value him more. And so as believers, as we're letting the spirit take control, we're also allowing him to push us to love and value Christ more. So it's not just extemporaneously sitting there and going, oh, I want to love my spouse or submit to my husband or love my wife better or parent my children better. No, it's my my goal is to love Christ more Mm -hmm. because that is the focus. Again, if we lose that, Revelation 2 will become true. We'll focus on the duties of doing it. I want to be a better parent. Well, that's great, but the focus of it is loving Christ. And so love him more. In fact, the Bible talks about a person who doesn't love the Lord. It says, let him be accursed in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. And 1 Peter, again, reminds us of this fact that though you do not see him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, though you don't see him now, you rejoice now with a joy inexpressible and full of glory. I love that. Full of glory because you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Mm -hmm. You are looking forward to what is true in Christ and will be yours confidently. And so everything that you're doing now is based on the spirit of God drawing you further because Christ will come and you will see him and you will be with him forever. And that is awesome. It only took one generation. Hmm. Read Revelation chapter 2, letter to the church of Ephesus, one, 40 years, one generation. Yeah. And, uh, and do the, repent and do the work you did at first. It's pretty simple. That was love me, Jesus said. Love me. Yeah. And we don't know, we do know from history that Ephesians got basically almost wiped off the face of the planet, even the church. Barely anything remained hmm. um, from the church. So. Did they, did they heed the warning of Christ? I don't know, but we do know that the church is no longer there. Mm-hmm. And so did God remove the lampstand? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a good warning for us all. So in closing, real quick, just real quick, you have just a few sentences to say to address the child that's suffering under a harsh parent, the parent that has the, the, the unruly child, the, the wife that has the harsh husband, the husband that has the, the unsubmissive wife, uh, the, the employee or servant who has a hard boss or someone over them, or the, or the, the leader who has insubordinate, uh, ungrateful um, employees under them per se. They're suffering in these relationships. Just a, just a few words real quick. What would you say to them? I would start off by saying, and I think I shared it with you guys uh, this week, but Jesus promising to be with you always, even to the end of the age. Yeah. I think the presence of God is often missed. We think God is absent from it. We think God doesn't care. We think it's purposeless. There is always the faithfulness of people submitting to his word, submitting in loving obedience to him. He is there. He notices. He is not missing it. Yeah. It will be worth it to remain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I uh, think of the life of King David. And when we read First and Second Samuel and through the Psalms, it's easy to compress the life of David into a few minutes of reading or a few afternoons of reading. But I go, here's where I go. Uh, like, I, I hate it. I hate it. Maybe second to Jesus, the injustices that are done in families 
and the hurt and the pain that comes from those who are stronger, taking advantage of the vulnerable and weak. But here's what I read King David saying. He says, I waited patiently on the Lord, Psalm 40. And he says, as I waited patiently on the Lord, he turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. And this is what I love. He lifted me out of the mess. It's coming. He will lift you out of the mess. He will bring healing. He's going to lift you out of the mess. He's going to set your feet on a firm place to stand. And this is, this is the purpose of it all. That many will see and fear as a result of your testimony. Many will see and fear and put their trust in Jesus because of your testimony and what Jesus brought you through. Absolutely. If you're listening to this and you find yourself in a situation you feel like you're struggling, um, you can't be alone in that. There's, there's great danger that bitterness... Um, and angst will well up in you, and you cannot do it by yourself. You need the body. So if you're part of this church and you're suffering, if you feel yourself pulling away more, that's the enemy winning. Press more into a small yeah. group. Yeah. Um, come talk to one of us. You've got to talk. You can't, don't go through it alone. Let, some, let, let your brothers suffer with you. Let us rejoice with you. Brothers and sisters, you have people here who love you. And so um, we're praying for you. Pray for one another uh, because that guards our prayer. Um, and then remember this, like we're all going to suffer. Mm-hmm. We're all going to suffer being on earth because it's imperfect. But through Jesus, every bit of suffering in his name has purpose and is right. worth it. Yeah. Todd, would you close us in prayer? Sure. Lord, as we think through the hardships that come, oh, Lord, the injustices that are done to your people, Lord, we know that you are, you don't miss it. You see it. You know it. You're grieved by it. So, Lord, I pray that your church would find rest in that and the truth that you know and that you are dealing with, you have dealt with. You're going to bring healing. So I pray right now for those who are being mistreated, Lord, that they would, they would know your peace that passes all understanding. And then, Lord, those who are mistreating and the abuser and the offender, Lord, I would ask now that you would bring them to a place of repentance. Call them to turn from it and treat those in their lives as you would have them to treat them, Jesus, we pray in your mighty name. Amen.